Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is James Burns. He's a physician's assistant from Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, and the reason we're, I'm interviewing him is we, we had this Twitter exchange about, um, about basically taking his job and making part of it remote uh, and it sounded interesting to me. So I reached out to him. So welcome to the show, James. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. Glad we had the interaction on Twitter. Yeah. So can you describe to people as your physician's assistant, uh, but you've got this other gig. Uh, can you describe to people what you do? Yeah. Well, so actually um, the, the job I'm working in is I'm acting as a physician assistant. Um, it's, that's my main thing. And, and what I'm doing now is um, working on what we call preoperative management. So I work in a hospital and any of the patients that are coming in for elective surgery, knee replacements, even uh, cardiovascular surgery, vascular surgery, 30 to 50 people a day come through our office to get pre-opt basically to go over their history, to find out if they have risk factors, see if they're ready, ready for surgery. Hmm. Usually at least half of those folks will have some sort of red flag, something in their history that comes up that makes them possibly a surgical risk. And those come to me. And so I'll get these charts for these people, look at their history, really try and take a fine tooth comb through it and find everything that could be either a contraindication or just a higher risk for surgery. And um, I'll try to pin down that and see if we can get that optimized prior to the procedure. Sometimes we can't. I talk to anesthesiologists and we make sure that everyone's aware of the risks. But really what I try to do is um, make sure people are safe to go into surgery. Um, and beyond that, on the business side of things, my job is really to uh, reduce the number of same-day cancellations because that's kind of a financial killer for a hospital that, that depends on surgery. So that's really interesting. And that basically you're saying that that stuff can be remote, can be done remotely. I think so. Um, there are some, uh, I've read a little bit of literature about places that have tried to implement some sort of video chat um, ways of doing this. This is relatively new that there's people like me in this position. So like as a, as a PA physician assistant or a, a nurse practitioner, which is kind of an equivalent level um, practitioner, maybe the last 10 ish years, I think it's really grown that they have people like me in this position because what happened at least at the hospital I work at, um, about 10 years ago, they had a consultant come in because mm. their same day cancellation rate for surgeries was uh, around 10%. And so that's within 24 hours of surgery, the surgery gets canceled for any reason. Uh. Um, in, in the literature, if you look at what it costs to cancel a surgery on the same day, it's anywhere from two to $6,000. And if for a hospital that may do 13,000 surgeries a year, 10% of those, um, that's, you know, that's, that's a huge amount of money. It's in the millions. So what the, what the consultant recommended was, hey, you need somebody that is um, kind of between the nurse who talks to the patient about their surgery and then the, the anesthesiologist who actually performs the anesthesia during the surgery, someone in between there uh. to really make sure things aren't getting missed and it's getting optimized. So they implemented that program, and at least at the hospital I'm at, from the data that I've seen, it went from about 10% down to maybe 4%. And 
um, there's, there's, a, there's a large amount of that's not controllable that people call in day of and just say they're not coming or they no show and we don't have so much control over that. But that could potentially save a hospital, you know, two million, three million dollars. Um, and we're not a massive, massive hospital. And so that's just with two people. It's myself and one of the persons currently doing this for, for, the, for our system. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, and it's so niche. Uh, and uh, it really is. It, I, that's, that's the greatest thing about it is that it is, I mean, it's very critical, but it's very much, um, I'm left to my own devices to get this done. I don't have a set schedule. I can prioritize, prioritize based on kind of the acuity of the patient that I'm, I'm looking at. And so I get to kind of dictate how it gets done. Uh, and, but you're doing it at the hospital currently. Currently. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I'm at the hospital, but for maybe an entire day, I may not physically speak to someone. Mm. Um, it's through, electronic health record primarily, um, and fax crazy enough. I mean, hospitals still run on faxing. Um, but a lot of that it's, I know it's, I can be sitting there for an hour waiting for a fax for some information that I have to verify, even though that I've been told over the phone what it is, which is, which is kind of nuts. But, um, fact, I mean, faxing is not what it used to be. We have, and this, this is actually lends itself to doing it remotely. There's an online, and this is how most people handle it now. There's like a, there's a server that all the faxes go to, kind of a central repository that they can sort of log it and look and see what's in there that's been faxed in. You're not sitting at a, you know, at a machine waiting for a piece of paper. So if I'm remote and I have access to this program called, called OnBase, anyone can fax to this number. Not only would I would see it, anyone else that wants to look at it from that has access can look at it too. Mm. Okay, so I see a couple of different ways we can take this conversation. Uh, so yeah. one is more of like a general, uh, you're in in this administration uh, kind of, would you, would you say that you're part of the administration or you're part of the healthcare? What is the difference between those two things? Yeah. So I'm definitely, I wouldn't call myself part of the administration. I mean, I'm functioning um, as a medical provider still, even though I don't have as much patient interaction, um, I'm still considered um, basically part of like a, you know, a treatment team uh, rather than administrative. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, So you're part of this treatment team, uh, but you're interfacing with a lot of like technology and a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of uh, electronic records. It, how how likely is it? Do you think that uh, electronic records will become easier? So I'll, I'll give an example. I've been I've been using this company called Forward Forward Medical, which is in San Francisco, and it's kind of like a new way of t- meeting uh, do- uh, primary care physicians with uh, mm-hmm. uh, with technology. So you know, I go in there uh, and I. Uh, I, like it's all a very seamless process and uh, uh, and the records is the most interesting because I have an app and I know that Kaiser Permanente is now doing apps as well, which is really, and that allows you to communicate directly with your, with your uh, doctor. What about in your hospital? Are there, how at the hospital you're working with, how integrated is it with uh, technology, at least for the patient side? It's getting there. Um, I don't think it's it's uh, quite as good as like what they have at Kaiser Permanente. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of the, our hospital included, a lot of places have pretty good tech, but it's still fairly siloed within each system. So our hospital system, um, you have a my chart you can log into. I think is what they call it, um, and you can see what's been done at our hospital. But if you go to the hospital five miles away, their my my chart doesn't talk to ours. So within the system, it's relatively good, but once you go out of the system, it may be the same at Kaiser. Um, I think the real thing that's going to make this stuff better is unfortunately or fortunately the consolidation of healthcare in general. Mm. Um, I mean, currently systems are becoming larger. Um, and I think that as, as they do that, they'll just kind of bring people into the fold. I don't know how much on the patient side of things 
they're able to see their medical history between different um, locations or between different companies, basically. Mm -hmm. On my side of things, it's actually gotten pretty good. I use one of the biggest electronic health records is called Epic. But um, so Epic is a, is a big company. It's a growing company. I mean, if you look at the, even like a fortune company, it's doing really, really well. Um, they are growing rapidly for electronic health records. And mm -hmm. for me, even outside of my hospital system, there's something called um, care everywhere. So I can, if people participate in that, like today I was looking at records from uh, a facility in Maryland and I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina. So it exists. Getting everyone on board with it is difficult. Getting every hospital system to kind of, I think buy into it might be um, where some of the resistance is, but I, a lot of the technology exists to make it happen. Um, and as far as like with, with my job specifically, everything I'm kind of, beholden to Epic, the one electronic health record system that we use. That's, that's the one I have access to. So if someone's in something different, unless they've scanned something into Epic, that's where I'm asking for faxes. Interesting. And what percentage of the hospital is, is dependent on faxes for the information, would you say? The faxes, <laughs> it's, information goes back and forth all day on faxes. Right. Um, and even with this, this aspect of Epic that allows me to see what's been done at other facilities, sometimes there's a delay in upload. I mean, I may call somebody and say, yeah, we uploaded that two days ago, but it, it for whatever reason, hasn't populated yet in the system that I'm looking at. So I say, oh, go ahead and fax it to me. And then you get this re crazy redundancy where we'll scan it into our system so we can see it. And then finally we'll be able to see it in theirs too. But um, huh. in North Carolina, in North Carolina, anyway, uh, the, the, uh, of the biggest health systems, Wake Forest, uh, Chapel Hill, where I, you know, the hospital system where I work, and then um, a couple of the others, they're all on Epic and it works quite well. The actual biggest one in the state uh, called Atrium is not on Epic and that, that causes some issues. And I don't know, I think there's a lot of inertia on the health system. It's really, really difficult to switch your electronic health record if you're a huge system. Hmm. Do, you, uh, do you work on one type of surgery or surgeries for all types in the hospital? All types, anything that's, anything that's um, it's, they call it elective, but basically it's anything outpatient. It's where the person is not already admitted. If someone's admitted to the hospital, they have a, 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 a kind of a, an in-the-room treatment team that takes care of that. But anyone that's coming from an outside is, is what I look at. So really, really across the whole spectrum. And mm -hmm. having worked in, in spine surgery for a, a couple of years has helped me a lot with kind of understanding what's important to look at prior to <laughs> operating on somebody. Oh, okay. Let's go into that. Uh, spine. I want to learn more about spines. I, I have a fair amount of understanding of uh, spines from my uh, kind of yoga teacher training. Uh, and um, uh, what are the big things that you looked for when, when somebody would come in for spinal surgery? Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my goal when I was seeing somebody in the office, new patient, um, follow-up patient, whoever it was, was to really, really get them to think hard about having surgery to make sure that they had done everything short of surgery before they do that. And that's a hard conversation because a lot of people, unfortunately, see surgery as just a fix. They think yeah. that they'll, they're going to come out better. Um, and some people do if it's a really, really um, significant problem. So what I looked for was, are, is this person having a neurologic issue? Are, are they having something that, if we wait, could lead to long-term detriment in their function? If that was the case, we would discuss surgery relatively quickly if we thought there was nothing else that was going to help them recover that function. Outside of a neurologic issue, I, it, was a, it, was, it was often a hard conversation about, here are the things that we definitely know, you know, weight loss, a better diet, anti-inflammatory diet, the simple things that are simple, but not easy. So that, that could be frustrating when some people would buy in and lose a lot of weight and feel great. It was an amazing mm -hmm. thing, but that was, that was a tough conversation. So, you know, outside of people with an acute neurologic issue, um, 
it was really trying to look, get people to look at their, their other parts of their lifestyle, even, and you know, stress, um, there's stress plays is from what I could see and from what I've read, stress, stress plays a whole huge role in chronic pain and, and back pain in particular, I think. And that was, that was hard to broach with people in a 15 minute time slot. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, and that's a huge thing because now the, because of so many surgeries and it's really great to know that, that you on the ground were, 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 uh, kind of trying to convince people of, of or trying to, uh, uh, make the evidence aware that like chronic pain, cause a lot of people, a lot of, I've understand it and please correct me if I'm wrong. I understand that a lot of doctors, uh, essentially, um, are, you know, worried about that their patients are in pain and then they see something like a herniated disc or a, a slip disc or what, you know, whatever, like, uh, on the x-ray. But what we've been finding is what the evidence seems to show, what I've, what I've looked at is that um, you take x-rays of people without back pain and they also have the same type of like spinal malfunctions uh, that, uh, uh, that we're having, uh, that, that people with chronic pain were having. So the, the, it's like it's, it, it shows, shows no relationship between those things and the chronic pain. Would you say that's an, that's an accurate assessment of what the evidence says? Yeah, on a population level, that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the radiology centers that we would sometimes send people to did a wonderful thing on their reports because the patients get a radiology report and the radiologist's job is to be very detailed with these things. So they'll point out everything that they see and the clinical relevance of most of that stuff is next to zero. Uh, but to the patient, it, it looks very, very important when you see these medical words that you Google and can find, you can, you, you can create relevance out of them pretty easily. But what this, what this, what this center did, they printed on the bottom of the radiology reports that uh, I think the number is said, you know, 60% of your of people in your age group have this finding yet have no pain. Uh, and so that would, that would be a really important teaching tool for people to, to, to know that there is poor correlation between radiographic finding and sort of clinical relevance to your pain. Unless, I mean, there were cases where someone would, like you said, with a herniated disc, if someone came in with a herniated disc and I looked at them and I said, gosh, this, 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 this looks like a glaring, you know, maybe L5 radiculopathy. So, so an, a neural uh, impingement of, on the L5 nerve. If, if I could look at that without an, without an MRI, and then say, I want to get the MRI and correlate this. And the MRI shows, hey, that thing's really smashing the L5 nerve. That's potentially an indication to take them to surgery because uh, you know, the, the mechanical decompression of that nerve generally leads to pretty good outcomes. But if their pain is sort of diffuse and doesn't correlate with a neural pattern, and they have, like, kind of like you're saying, these um, non-specific findings of just degenerative changes on an X-ray or an MRI, it's, it's tough to have a lot of confidence that surgery is going to be the thing that fixes that you know so yeah i'd say that's that's a huge issue is that <laughs> you can always you, you can find a problem on an mri it's 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 not hard um it's this spine surgery got a really bad rap in the in the 90s because of this problem they started mriing a lot more people and finding dehydrated discs and back in the 90s a dehydrated disc was a license to, to do a fusion mm. um and like you're saying if you the pain may have not been caused by the disc. That was just the most impressive finding on the MRI. So you go uh, undergo a fusion, a three to six month recovery. The pain is the same because you never mm-hmm. sussed out what the original cause was. So yeah, that's, that, that's a huge issue. And it's when people are really are in pain, they, they want an answer so badly. So they see something on an MRI that to them seems to explain it. And you have to really spend a lot of time trying to help them understand that, you know, really what, what does, what does the, the MRI mean? And, does it does it reasonably explain what's going on a lot of times it doesn't hmm. 
That's so interesting. I learned there that that essentially a doctor will take an X-ray. This, you know, this is only what I'm getting from you. Uh, so a doctor will take an X-ray, find something, and then they can use the MRI to then see whether that correlates with something else that they find in the MRI. And the MRI images soft tissue, tissue, correct? Like joints. Well, it's the yeah. So it's 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 the best for soft tissue. Um, you can see bony anatomy on it. I mean, if someone has a compression fracture in their spine or, 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 or a gross bony abnormality, you can definitely pick it up on an MRI. But a CT scan would be the best for a high definition look at that for really subtle things or for you know to to make sure, to rule out fractures and things like that. But yeah, you're right. MRI is uh, most most helpful for soft tissue. So you got X-ray for bone, and then uh, what is a CT scan? What is that? Can you go more into what that is? Yeah, so CT scan, um, short for com computed tomography, and basically what it is, um, it's it's basically like you've got three X-ray machines that just spin around you and take thousands of images, so yeah. they can create a 3D reconstruction, so you can get slices, what we call sagittal, axial, and coronal. So the X-ray slice you from three different planes and create a really nice image from that, and that only takes about five minutes or so to go through a CT scan or an MRI, you know to do with lumbar MRI, it's 20 to 30 minutes. So another reason people like CTs um, is for the speed and for, you know, for the cost as well, but there's, you have to, you know, no one, no one talks about it to their patients, but you have to consider the radiation burden as well. That mm. mm. was, I went to Mexico to get some stuff done, some work and they actually, they actually talk about it there. They, they don't let you, uh, there's like out, there's out, there's out outside hospital labs. They're not, the labs are not in the hospital. So you go to some like commercial. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. You get a, a radar and they're like uh i, I got an x-ray and, and then i was like oh but i wanted an x-ray from this point and they're like no no you gotta go get a doctor's prescription for that because there's radiological effect that's incredible isn't it i mean that, that no one i mean you may sign a piece of paper here that um says you understand what you're what you're going through and then beyond that even most people don't know that between different locations between different ct scanners you may get a different amount of radiation and so sometimes it's beneficial to ask between just like you can get a different price at different locations you may be getting a different radiation burden mm -hmm. um between but just between different locations and so again this is stuff that in in the united states i think probably is harder just the way medicine is structured it's it's a quote unquote f free market but mm -hmm. there's <laughs> there's a lot of you're going to go where your where your doctor sends you because ostensibly they they know they've done the due diligence to know that's a good location which and a lot of times, you know, it's not necessarily true. I mean, I don't think most of the people that refer to um, an imaging center for a CT of the abdomen, pelvis, with and without contrast, realize how much radiation that is, or or, or tell the patient how much that is. It may be, you know, after after several subsequent ones, you have the conversation. But I think it's I think it's rare to get that. So it's interesting to hear that you had that conversation in Mexico. Yeah, um, yeah, it's really interesting. All right, uh, so I got I have a I have a an idea that I have, uh, it sounds like you might be able to give me some insight into it. Um, Love to. Uh, yeah. I, I, so I've been teaching uh, breathwork sessions or I've been sharing breathwork sessions on zoom. Uh, mm -hmm. That means just kind of like, it's a little bit of meditation, a little bit of uh, 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 regulated breathing uh, and just a kind of a little bit of uh, science behind what we're doing with the breathing uh, and why it's helpful for uh, like autonomic nervous system and all this other different stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking about, uh, there are people in hospitals who have weakened immune systems um, due to various things. I know this because my father had leukemia and he was, he was put in one of these rooms basically, and he couldn't see other people. Uh, but we could still communicate via uh, zoom because the hospital had good, good Wi-Fi, uh, And so uh, he's now uh, getting better. And I was, but I was thinking how, 
it would be really cool if I could teach breath work or even yoga movement to people in hospitals in that situation mm. uh, and uh, uh, through through Zoom. Uh, and I'm wondering how do I even approach that in getting that into a hospital to either get the patients aware of it or even come come through and like and not you know either get the patients aware aware of it. Uh, through means that are not necessarily through the administration or going through the doctors of those or the nurses of those units. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, inpatient patients who are hospitalized, it tends to be, I'm just thinking the, you know, connectivity and uh, the structure of their day is so is such that it's constantly interrupted, which is frustrating too. There's, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, there's the kind of frenetic activity always happening. Um, that's, that's, that is an interesting idea because I think that would be, I think a lot of people potentially be interested in that. And actually the, the breath work part of it is doubly interesting because um, I don't know if you've experienced it with when your father was in the hospital, but a lot of people when they're in a bed, especially after surgery, they get a device where they're encouraged called an incentive spirometer to hmm. encourage to breathe deeply. Um, it, it's a little device. It's a little plastic thing and you sure. blow into it forcefully. So you raise a ball that's inside the device that kind of gives you feedback about, you know, the, the pressure you're exerting. And people are encouraged to do that frequently because we know that if people lay in bed and don't breathe deeply, they're, they're at risk for something called atelectasis, which is in the, the, the basis of the lungs. If you're kind of laid in the bed and, and, and don't take deep breaths, you can get a collapse of the alveoli. Um, and so you, your oxygenation is impaired and there's even some, now this is, this is debated that it can cause like fever and things like that. Regardless, it's not a good thing. And it's relatively common after surgery. Breath work would be actually wonderful for that. That's really- um, I think, I, I think, the there's off the, off the top of my mind, there's two places that would be um, potentially easier to integrate this. One would be in outpatient facilities, like mm-hmm. for um, primary care offices and places like that. That if you could, if the patient could be given this information from their primary care, saying, you know, this is service is available available in the event that you're hospitalized, mm-hmm. so that they would have a resource that they could, you know, if someone has it, if if this is distributed from a primary care. I mean, not even be that the patient themselves ends up using it, but they, they know about it in case of a family members in the hospital. Because I think a lot of people in their 70s, 60s, you know, are going to have a tougher time with the technology and all that kind of stuff. So if you have a family member that maybe knows about this and can can relay it to them, that might be effective. So giving giving people the information when they're well in an outpatient setting that, hey, this is available. Mm. Um, and then having something they can sort of log into or check when sessions are, that might be one way. Mm. Another thing that I think this might even be more applicable before I went back to PA school, so originally I did a master's in exercise physiology um, and worked in a metabolism lab for a couple of years down in Texas. And um, I thought it was going to be a PhD track and decided that's not what I wanted to do and then decided to go to PA school. But between those times, I worked in cardiac rehab. Cardiac rehab actually does a really nice job of trying to integrate uh, stress reduction techniques. It was a required part, actually, of cardiac rehab. So the set, there was 30, 36 sessions. Each session was about an hour and a half. About 15 minutes of that, the patients were, according to their insurance, supposed to be doing you know, 10 to 15 minutes of, of like progressive relaxation, uh, muscle tension release, that kind of thing. Whoa. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I loved it. It was so hard to get the patients to buy into it. Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, they would just kind of poo-poo it. But if you could give them some data and say, hey, listen, this is, this is what's actually happening here when, you, when you're doing this deep breathing – you're, you're activating your vagal nerve. The vagal nerve has a huge effect on your, your, your heart rate. If we can get your vagal tone better, your, your heart rate better. But you, you go through the whole thing. Sometimes you can get them to buy in, not everybody. But so cardiac rehab has been actually in on this idea for a little while. Yeah. Most of this is done outpatient. 
Um, and I don't see any reason why like a cardiac rehab program at Kaiser or another facility, if, if, if you approach them and said, Hey, this is, this is what I'm doing. And I think I can show that there's cardiac benefit to this. Could we integrate this in a, uh, a video format for your rehab sessions? I think that would be a very reasonable approach. That is a really good idea. Um, and also you mentioned something interesting about insurance because insurance wants people to do this too. They do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, I don't know how, I mean, that would be interesting if someone was in the industry that could explain how they got on board with this. What was the, you know, they're so usually so slow to, to come around to these ideas, but they've been on this, um, stress and cardiac access kind of this interplay for a while now, which is, which is excellent because my God, you can look at, um, some of the newer literature and atrial fibrillation. And I think that people are coming around to the idea that your mental state plays a huge role, which I think is intuitive to most people, but it's hard to quantify. It's hard to make a prescription for it. So something like this in a cardiac rehab program, when you have a captive audience that has been through an experience that lets them know that, Hey, you, you are at risk and this is a way to help you might be really good. That is really cool. That's a really good idea. Um, yeah, the two, uh, I want to do this, that part for free, but then I want, I want to bring it into companies as well. Uh, well, I think the other thing, I mean, even if you do it for free for a while, I mean, I don't think there's any reason why you couldn't create, it's something that doesn't require you anymore. Right. I mean, you, you've created a, a series of things for the 36 session journey through cardiac rehab that takes them from beginning to end. And that's a, that's a package product that the companies now uh-huh. use. It doesn't require you to be sort of there doing a session. I think that would be a, like a, a, an awesome thing. Oh, well, yeah. That sounds like a cool product. Uh, um, well, and, and, and so for me, there is something interesting though, because I've noticed that pre there is a huge difference between pre-recorded and live. Uh, so, mm, okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And, and then also then there's a difference between live within with one-on-one and live with a group. Um, so live with one-on-one, I can kind of like tune into exactly what, what, uh, they need in the moment. Uh, but then right. a group after then, uh, tailor it to, to the entire group kind of its lowest common denominator. Um, but that is a really good idea for a, for a actual product. I wonder if that already exists, but if it doesn't, that's a really good idea. Uh, very the only thing that, yeah, the only thing that I know that exists is, is, um, it's, uh, I mean, you know, audio CDs of progressive relaxation, but they're pretty canned. I mean, they're pretty yeah. off the shelf. There's not a lot. And that's the only things I've been exposed to the couple of different cardiac rehab programs I was, I was at. There, there's probably some more progressive organizations that may be doing something like this, but at least five or six years ago, I didn't, I didn't see it. Who, who would be like a decision maker at a cardiac rehab um, center? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, every, every cardiac rehab is going to have a, um, like a supervising physician, medical director, but there's going to be somebody. We, we, it's funny, the, the cardiac program I worked at was pretty rural. We ran a lean, lean team. It was me, hmm. uh, two nurses, and that was pretty much it. Um, I think that if you, so the exercise physiologist, that's what I was. Those are the people that are kind of programming and day-to-day with the patients. They're, they're writing the exercise programs. They're doing the testing. They're the ones kind of administering everything. So the exercise physiologists for any given program, if you could get their buy-in on it, they might be the ones that would have to, you know, kind of run that up the chain. Uh, interesting. Exercise physiologist. Um, yeah, usually an EP, an exercise physiologist, those are kind of who's doing all the programming for each individual session. Uh-huh. Um, interesting. Um, actually, before we I want to circle back to um, the, the spine stuff, because I saw actually, um, I was looking at your Twitter before getting on the interview, and uh, I didn't see all of it, but there was some uh, discussion about the collagen. 
Uh, yeah, let's get into that. Um, so I don't, are you familiar with Keith Barr's work? Nope. Okay, so his, his last name is Barr, B-A-A-R. Um, he's in, actually, let me, let me look him up real quick and see what, where his lab is. It's in Florida, I believe. So he does a lot of physiology research, muscle physiology, exercise, um, endurance, re regeneration, things like that. Um, let's see, muscle science, that's him. I'll have to look. But anyway, he has done, I think he's got some talks even, um, potentially on this. I know he's got some great podcasts that I've listened to that he's been interviewed, but he does a lot of collagen research. Um, and he's got some protocols that he has seen in the lab as far as increasing collagen turnover and synthesis. It oh. focuses on um, a, it's, it's a, it's a vitamin C enriched gelatin or collagen. So I can't remember off the top of my head. There's something to do, I think with the vitamin C and the hydration of the, the, the collagen, but without the vitamin C, it doesn't seem to work as well. So it's, it's a pre-exercise. So he's got some different protocols about, I think it's 10 to 15, 10 or 15 grams of collagen. Um, and I have to look maybe 500 milligrams, a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, maybe even less than that. I think, I think sometimes he just says mix it in orange juice. Huh. Take a, you know, 30 minutes to an hour prior to exercise. Um, I think more kind of resistive exercise, but again, he maybe has more research on the scene in showing that having that in the system, I mean, he's done the blood work to show that the increase in certain um, amino acids uh, specific to collagen uh, uh, creation, but doing that before exercise can increase collagen turnover in the um, deposition of new collagen. So he's, he's, I think he's got some tendon injury research, ligament injury research, stuff like that. So he's a really good guy to look into for, for collagen. And he's, I, he's done podcasts. I mean, I don't know. He may be somebody to reach even if you had specific uh, questions or a longer conversation about that. Um, I think he's, from what I've listened, I've listened to one of uh, several different talks about that. Stim Talk, he did a great, um, there's, there's, a, there's a podcast called Stim Talk, S-T-E-M Talk, yeah. out of the, um, oh, is it International Human Machine Cognition? It's somewhere in Florida, but they do, they do great talks and he was on there. Huh. That's really interesting. Um, so you, you're, so it sounds like you have some awareness of, what, of collagen. So it's the main structural protein in the body. What does that mean? Whew, it means it's ubiquitous. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of collagen turnover that goes on um, all day, every day. You're breaking it down, laying down, down new um, collagen. My, you know, exposure to it was more in muscle uh, physiology, ligaments, tendons, things like that, that like everything else in the body, it, it, it reacts to stress. So tendons um, are, can often be the limit. They can be the limiting factor a lot of times in, in um, force production and muscle mm -hmm. because I mean, that's the last link in the chain that connects the belly, the muscle to the, to the bone. And so mm -hmm. the strength of the tendon can often dictate, you know, how much force you can produce. And it responds just like muscle does to training lays down, gets bigger, gets thicker, gets stronger. Um, and, you know, I think, I'd have to go back. This is, this has been a while. So I looked at the stuff in, uh, in depth, but, um, you know, diet plays a role. Certainly. I think, you know, the, people look at the chronic inflammation, um, and tendons and then getting brittle and, and injury and things of that nature. And at the tendon, there's, gosh, there's really interesting research on, I think, I don't know if it's Keith Barr or someone else did this with athletes. Um, there's been some suspicion in the way athletes train their tendons, leading them possibly to be more susceptible to injury during competition that they're, off-season training doesn't train their tendons to produce force in the right way. So they get, um, that, 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 that's what gives way first. So it's, it's actually, it's a really active area of research, I think. Um, but 
And uh, what I've been finding out a lot about is uh, uh, is the fascia too, because fascia is made from, I believe, collagen and uh, ECM connective tissue cells or uh, extracellular matrix uh, stuff. Yeah, fascia is um, inter- interesting. Gosh, I don't know that it's, it's, I think it's a unexplored area of the body to some degree. Um, well, uh, so it is becoming, it is, you're, you're very, very right. That a lot of, we don't know a lot about it, but we, we are starting to figure out. And that's the interesting thing because massage, massage therapists were the first ones who kind of got onto this. Uh, cause they were, you know, they were, they've been touching this stuff and it's like the connection between everything else. Um, and then they're like, what is this stuff? And so they, they actually started doing a lot of the research and then, and then now, now it's getting, um, it's now a lot of it's being done in the universe universities. Uh, and there's actually a, something called a fascia research, uh, Congress where all the people, oh, doing, is that right? yeah, all the people doing fascia, fascia research all around the world, uh, get together for a few days and, and share that. Oh, that's interesting. It's all on YouTube and. Um, so, but there's these been these massage therapists who have been studying it for like 10, 15 years. Um, and they're the first ones on it. Uh, and they, they, they all do videos. So that there's, there, there is some really interesting stuff. So most of the sensory receptors in our, um, in our muscles are actually in the fascicular components of, uh, of the, of the m- muscles. So like the fascia of the muscles, because each muscle cell is wrapped by fascia and then each, um, uh, each muscle group is wrapped by fascia. And, and then that fascia connects that to you know, the, the skin where the superficial layer and stuff like that. So, um, and this stuff is all made of collagen as well. And it's, it's, it, that's the, the viscoelastic part where it's like, um, yeah. And that, and that's what all comes together into that tendon and, you know, to, to connect it to the, to the bone. So yeah, you're right. I mean that the integrity of that all along the length of the muscle is important because, um, you know, a lack of of integrity in, in that can reduce your force production at, at the level of the tendon junction with the bone. Um, and what you're saying about the massage therapists, I think that these fascial lines and everything actually potentially, I think some people connect them back into sort of uh, Meridian. the acupuncture meridians, right? Yeah. And there is some, I mean, I, there's some research looking at um, like neural tube development and um, embryonic stages and the, you know, the, the, the way that this stuff is laid out embryonically and how, you, you know, in the brain, we have this, this, this homunculus of, of sensation and things like that that sort of set down very early in life where areas of the brain, you know, have, have there's a huge amount of receptors for, for, for feet and hands and things like that and how stuff can be tied in to one another. So, I mean, there really is some interesting research to be done there. And I, some of it is seems so far out there. I think it's hard for it to, to be seen as legitimate by um, bench researchers and things like that. But I yep. think, yeah, there's, there's a lot that's, unknown there. And I think there's a lot of probably, I mean, muscle soft tissue injuries are so pernicious and so difficult. And I saw, actually I saw a lot of that in, in my uh, job in spine surgery Mm. and people had a hard time (laughs) believing me and buying into that. And I would always use, my example was typically when people would have a soft tissue, what what I thought was a soft tissue injury, a fascial injury, a ligamentous injury, something like that. And it wasn't getting better. And I would tell them you need lots, you know, you need have to go to your physical therapy. You have to do all these things or else it's not going to get better. And they would sort of, you know, not believe that. And I would give the example of, if you look at anybody in the NFL, um, if a linebacker, you know, breaks his forearm, they're going to cast that sucker and he'll be out there six weeks with a big old cast on four or six weeks. If a wide receiver tears his hamstring, shut him down. You know, you can't, it, it just doesn't respond the same way. Hmm. Um, so if you know, Rob Gronkowski was essentially sidelined by, persistent back spasms after he had um, lumbar microdisc surgery. It was, it was back spasms. It was the muscular stuff that 
and as I told people, you know, if, if he can't, if he's got the access to the best people in the world, the best physicians, the best therapists, and they can't get a handle on this, this is, this is difficult stuff. So uh, people do need to be looking into this in a different way because we don't have, we don't have the answers for that stuff. That is really interesting. Uh, oh, and I just got a question, but it's disappearing. Um, so, Casey, okay, so I have I have the impression that we know a lot about exercise. We have a lot of actual like funding going towards exercise because mm-hmm. of what you just said. Because we have athletes uh, who make a lot of money, so it's worth yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, is that a, is that an accurate representation that we do know a lot about the human body because of this funding from that? I. Th- it's probably true, um, and probably somewhat maybe somewhat indirectly too yeah because you know it's research for better or worse these days and this is part of the thing that i got disillusioned by when i was in research lab it's mostly funded from somebody looking to make a profit off of the results of your work um you know it's not there's not there's not a huge amount of funding for for basic science for sort of fundamental research anymore it's somebody is wanting to develop something so they'll fund your research to look at it and so i think a lot of this with the sports world um you know there'd, there'd be huge payoff to a company that could develop a product that increases collagen synthesis and recovery time so i think there are a lot of private companies um like uh, uh, abbott who makes a lot of supplements um and a couple others that make a lot of sports supplements that do fund a lot of research um, which is great because you can get, you know, basic understanding out of it, but you're right. I mean, it all comes back to who's, who's, who's the target for the eventual product of this. And a lot of times it probably is, you know, it's athletes, it's, it's people that, um, with, with these injuries. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's a bad thing, but, um, you're probably right. There's, there's a good bit of it driven by that. Well, and, and yeah, I didn't mean to be, have a kind of like a, um, a moral, moral take on it where, where I think it's right or wrong, but the, the, so there's one question that came up. Why do you think basic science uh, isn't being funded in the same way that it used to be? Is that government or? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's a lot. Well, on a, I guess probably on a, on a relative basis, there's less funding available. There are a lot of, you know, uh, PhD people produced. There are a lot of people that want to start research labs. There's a lot of competition for funding. There's, there's, there's more than we ever realized <laughs> that was available to be investigated. So there's a lot of people that have ideas that want to be investigated. There's, you know, ever more people kind of uh, throwing their hat in the ring for, I got, and probably even on an absolute basis, the funding may be less. I'm not sure about that, but I know there's more competition for it. So everybody's looking for a million dollar RO1 grant from the government to fund the research. There's just a lot of those. Um, and so if you don't get that, you've got to fund your lab. You've got to pay your people. You've got to get some work done. So a lot of times there's, there's private money that's willing to step in to have something researched. You know, mm. they're creating a product, they're doing something that they want to monetize. Um, and they'll, unfortunately, a lot of that, then, you know, how much do they uh, design the research or dictate what gets published? A lot. That really, that happens a lot. I mean, negative, negative results don't get published, which is, which is a real shame. Um, they're just as important as, as the positive results. And that, and then, that, and then that leads to like, you know, they're, they're, funding this research in order to get a product and then uh the money they want that money to have a roi uh and you know return on investment and then uh and then so that creates an incentive where then they they uh find the results they're looking for uh and then sure yeah the product actually works comes into comes into question correct Oh my God. Yeah. And I'm not the person to talk about, um, statistics and data, data mining, but, um, you can, there's a lot of, there's a lot that's been said and written about, you know, the, 
the clinical significance of a lot of the stuff that gets published because if you slice data 80 different ways, but you don't correct for that in your uh, sort of a priori statistical analysis, if you, if you don't, if you slice the data a bunch of ways you weren't intending to and find significance, it's probably not significant, but that happens a lot. I mean, you'll, you'll mine data until something pops up as, Ooh, we got something here. And that's what gets published. Not the, not the 30 other variables you looked at that didn't, that, just, that didn't hit. And so that's unfortunate. I mean, again, you know, there, there's, this is all exists on a scale, of course. I mean, there's, there's, there's labs when you have a really well-established lab. I mean, you've got, when you, when you're, when you, you've got a reputation of great work, I think that happens probably less. You're not under as much pressure to do these sort of things. I mean, you can, you can, you can, you can run it the way you want, but people that have upstart labs that really want to uh, get, get their work published. I think they probably get leaned on a little more. Interesting. Yeah. And that's like, it seems like incentives that everyone in this planet is going through right now with the internet. It's like they want to be recognized online. Um, and so they, they, uh, <laughs> yeah. they, they display their life or their work in ways that it, that is might not be that accurate. Uh, and, uh, and so it seems like even, even, even within science, like, I guess, you know, uh, a, a peer reviewed journal is, 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 is the Instagram of science, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That can be true. <laughs> um, and then they, and then, yeah, that's, yeah, it's super interesting, but I mean, overall, like science is, I love studying biology because, because there's some things, this is, this is an impression on my mind. And I'd love it if you could um, uh, double check it basically is that there's some things we can know just by looking at them. So we can, we can know that the tendon is made up of this collagen and this percentage. And we just know that from doing dissections over and over and over again. Um, but then there are things we don't know. What, how do we know the difference between, or how can we, like, that's called empirical, right? Within science, when, when you can just look at something and then there's empirical evidence for why the tendon, or what, what the tendon is composed of. Yeah, I mean, I think that some people, you could always find someone to debate it, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all right with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then so, but then what are these other things that we have to study in more abstract or more um, meta ways? Do you understand what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, well, let me see if I do. Um, so I think when you say that, it, it, a lot of it to me is the difficulty in physiology and you know everything else in the body is is cause and effect that you you'll you'll see an input and an output but how that got filtered through to actually produce that is really difficult to see um you know there's a there's so, the the research can be hard to keep up with because there's so much that happens at cellular level to create what you see i mean it's 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 hard to understand um that you know they, they're they're constantly finding new interactions um and even new, you know, new enzymes, new enzymes. Right yeah. now, the, the thing you make, a lot of people, the NLRP3 inflammasome, you know, how, how um, uh, thing, lifestyle, basically diet, exercise, all these things, how that turns on and off these um, cellular signals of inflammation. I mean, and that's, so a lot of this is relatively, it's, it's, it's a burgeoning field. And so, you know, you see that something happens in inflammation then results but how it gets there is incredibly complicated. Yeah. And then, you know, then we have something like the endocannabinoid system, which was only like started to become aware of, uh, I think in the nineties, maybe a little bit earlier, but um, you know, there's this whole system in the body that's like, has a lot of different effects, which we don't fully understand yet. Uh, uh, yeah. All of the body. Um, and it's really hard to study because it's uh, autocrine cells. So it's, uh, it's, it's what, what do you, what are some interesting facts about autocrine cells? 
Oh man, um, that that you probably need more of an endocrinologist for. Um, oh. the auto, yeah, autocrine. I I I could make a fool of myself, but I choose not to. Um, no, well, but but we're saying about the endocannabinoid system though. Um, that that's a really interesting one, obviously for a lot of reasons right now. And oftentimes in physiology, what's so important is flux. Um, when we look at something in physiology, you, you, you look and you take a snapshot, you see what's happening. That's mm. at a point in time, but flux is so important. What, what's happening? What's, what's the rate of change? You know, what, what are the variations in on and off signaling? What's, you know, diurnally or, or, or postprandially or all these type of things. It's, it's hard to get a sense of what flux is oftentimes when you're studying these things, because it's, it's in vivo, it's happening in life. It's, it's mm. hard to see that. And I think the endocannabinoid system, God, what, what, what we keep finding though is the things that, you know, what are the things that um, produce endocannabinoids, right? It's, it, it's, it's, it's meditation, it's stress reduction, it's exercise, it's, right. it's an anti-inflammatory diet. It's all those things that produce those. It's the same thing that do all the other good things. Um, to some degree, it's almost like we, we, we know, we keep finding new things that are positively affected by doing the things that we already know we're supposed to be doing, yet we have a hard time getting people to do them. And that can be so frustrating. Uh, um, and that's, that's to bring it back to what you're doing, because that's what you're, yeah. you're, you're trying to do that and say, Hey, like meditation does do something to the endocannabinoid um, thing. How did you find that information out? Well, so the reason I started even looking at this was because when I was doing spine, I had a lot of patients within the last years, you can imagine asking me about CBD, essentially CBD oil. Mm -hmm. Do I recommend it? What does it do? Will it decrease their pain? All this kind of thing. And I, you know, I, I always told you, I can't tell you with any confidence with what you are going to buy is going to do X, Y, or Z thing. What I can tell you is that we know that a system exists within your body that, um, when you have something like cannabidiol or another, uh, cannabinoid, there's a receptor there. So when you take this, there is going to be some sort of biological activity. It may depend on the strength of the preparation or your physiology or every, you know, 10 other things. I can't say what it'll do for you, but I did have to, I had to research a little bit so I could at least give people an answer to it, which was that, yeah, this, this, this system exists. I, I likened it to um, the endogenous opiate system, which I think is probably some similarities to it. Um, the reason that you can, you know, nothing, nothing's going to have an effect at that level unless it has a receptor to bind to. And there, there are endocannabinoid receptors, so it's, it's going to do something, I think, but I, I don't have, a, I don't have full confidence yet on, you know, the magnitude of the effect, the consistency of the effect or, or mm. any potential downsides to it. And then, cause there's also this, uh, uh, thing that I've been heard whispers of, and I, I don't have uh, really, you know, solid findings for this, but, uh, the, the, the endocannabinoid system is actually responsible for a lot of the things that we thought the opioid system, uh, and endogenous opioid system was responsible for, for example, the runner's high, mm. uh, the runner's high is actually uh, what I've read is that it's actually, uh, um, uh, from the endocannabinoid system, not from the, uh, endo opioid system. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't seen that, but, um, it wouldn't, it definitely wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I think we often, yeah, I think this is, this is, there's probably a lot of uh, situations like this in physiology where you, again, you see that you do the exercise and you, you take some, you say, Oh, these opioids increased. That must be what's doing it. But there's, there's 10 other things that are also happening that are, that are fluxing at that time that you haven't measured yet. Mm. And so, I mean, it's, this is the way we drug discovery. My God. I mean, there's, people take medicine, something happens. We think, ah, oh, here's the, here's the mechanism. You may not find it until 20 years later that, Oh my God, I was actually doing this thing. Mm. Something similar happened with statins. Um, you know, statins are one of the most, prominently prescribed drugs out there. And, um, if you look at sort of, there's a lot, 
lipidology is a growing field. People that really do in-depth stuff study of lipids in people. And so we, we've known for many, many years that from, from, the, from the inception of statins, they lower cholesterol. They do. They, just, they lower cholesterol. And so that was purported to be, aha, here's, here's your A to B. Cholesterol is lower. Cardiovascular um, risk for secondary prevention. It's, it's good. But subsequently you find, okay, it does these other things. One, it has something called a pleiotropic effect. So plaque that already exists in the arteries seems to get stabilized when you take a statin. So not only do you not lay down as much new plaque potentially, but the statin was actually holding in place the plaque that was already there. We didn't know that, but we were getting this benefit from it that we didn't realize. Also, if you look at lipids, everyone knows about LDL, the, the bad cholesterol, right? Mm. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. There's other, there's other particles, things like lipoprotein little a, there's, 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 there's variants of LDL. Um, and we see in some people that if you take a statin, their LDL comes down, but there's a, there's something else. There's, you know, there's a different lipoprotein that in some people doesn't get affected by that. So their, their, their relative risk hasn't really reduced that much. Some people, this statin actually did reduce that, that third thing that we didn't know about at the time. And they got the great benefit out of it, but we had no clue mm-hmm. it was doing that. So, I think this happens a lot where the, you, the first thing you see, the first change you see, the, the biggest delta potentially, like maybe opioids increase more, but they're not as potent or something like that in the situation. So I, yeah, it's, it's almost never um, your answer when you, for the first thing that you see. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of things that come up. The, you know, uh, one, which is like, we just discovered the endocannabinoid system recently. Uh, what other systems are in the body that we have no idea are in there? Uh, that are that are there uh, and uh, there's this book I've been reading called the psychedelic information theory because uh, you know hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about cannabis that cannabis has its own system does psilocybin also have its own system that that's endogenous to the body and this guy this guy actually has a theory on it and it's called uh, 5-HTP2 I think uh, it's one of the serotonin receptors I think um, okay uh, sure yeah uh, but but it gets it gets into that and stuff but uh, yeah, the in, in vivo thing is really interesting. And that's the other point I wanted to make, which is that um, in yoga from one of my teachers, Kaya Midland, uh, who like lived in a Indian like um, uh, ashram that's still like, it was uh, like authentic tradition because a lot of a lot of one schools in India are not authentic and meaning that they've had uh, lineage for long periods of time. She brings up a good point, which is that yoga is, you know, that multi-thousand year practice um, and if we know about the Lindy effect in, in terms of things that are older, that are still around, usually are reliable. And so yoga has come to a, like a, a pretty reliable set of ways to navigate an uncertain universe. And one of the, mm. uh, one of the, one of the um, big things uh, that they, that she talks about in authentic yoga, they, they say that the unknown, it has, there are way, way more things that we don't know. Um, and so how do we deal how do we live in this world where most of the effects happen from things that are totally unknown and we can try to sliver off a little piece of it and get some knowledge about, about how it works. You know, science is like expanding the knowledge that we have. Um, But that uncertainty might even be more like much bigger than we think. So how do we live in this world? And so yoga has a lot of techniques as to how to live in this world and and knowing that that's, that's the case. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like that. I I love that the, um, this, this Lindy effect is really hit the zeitgeist. I guess I have, we have uh, Nassim Taleb to thank for, to thank for that yeah. with, with a lot of his writing. Um, and that's, yeah, yoga, yoga sounds like a, a pretty good um, uh, example of that. 
Well, and there's a catch though, too, because a lot of what is presented in yoga is not actually thousands of years old. For example. Which, which, if people listen to, which podcast was it that you talked about this? Uh, <laughs> was it, it was a chronic pain podcast, wasn't it? Oh, no, I don't remember. I, about, uh, about, um, about, I think I, about this theory or about, uh, uh, is there a podcast? Oh, but uh-huh. I think one of your, I think one of your recent podcasts was it the one you did with chronic pain where you, where you discussed how yoga has been sort of co-opted by other things and it's not quite what it used to be. Was it, was it the Scandinavian sort of, uh, calisthenics or stretching that got, exactly. that, that got uh, integrated into it? Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I think so I, as soon as you said that, I was like, ah, oh, you've heard it before. <laughs> well, I know. I think I heard it from you. I, I believe it was on, if it wasn't on your podcast, it was on, it was on somebody else's that I listened to recently. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so and uh, Scandinavian calisthenics got brought to India by the British government um, in, during the colonization, and then that mixed with uh, Madame Blavatsky, who was the uh, the uh, <laughs> founder of, of of theosophy of the theosophical religious movement that repopularized the Bhagavad Gita among the uh, Indian national elite, and then they they basically mixed this. Um, with some authentic stuff, there is some authentic stuff within within this rep- modern representation of what it is, but a lot of crazy stuff. And I think the most interesting mm. one is that uh, in the 1800s, most of the yogis that were kind of um, hanging out in the street were actually considered like black magicians, uh, and and, and oh. these yoga techniques were were black magic essentially. Uh, and uh, and and now and now it's and now it's being used in, inside of yoga studios. And then the crazier thing is that a lot of American spiritualists is a, a, a religious movement in the 1850s um, is also kind of black magic. Uh, and that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what's important in modern yoga too. Um, Interesting. Uh, and so now we got it. Yeah. It's, it's a very, and so like if you get deep on some of these techniques, they're, they're very, very, very powerful and not always, uh, they're very subtle in their, in their thing too. Going back to that unknown part, we don't, you know, a lot of the things, that is being passed off on yoga. We don't know the effects of uh, just in the same way. We don't know the effects of modern, a lot of modern medicine. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, yoga, yoga, it seems like there's still in, there's a lot, there's a lot to learn. I think there's like, you know, there's an FMRI, FMRI research and things like that. If people that are, are good meditators or good, you know, right. mindfulness and that kind of thing, that's very interesting. Was tra- traditional yoga, was it more, was it more like breath work, r- less, less physical or what, what? Well, so yeah, so the asana, asana means um, seat. Uh, so, and, and if the, the first kind of time that we see the word asana comes up in Patanjali's um, yoga sutras from around 500 BC, and uh, and that there's only a couple of different things he says about that. Um, it's probably means that it's probably means the meditation posture that we sit in in meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the seat that you take when you're meditating, and then there are a bunch of postures that come from that. Uh, and and the first thing that he mentions is the connection between uh, sthira and sukha, which is uh, comfortableness uh, versus rigidity. Uh, so that line, finding that line between comfort and rigidity, um, while in a seated meditation posture. Um, but then you can also meditate in these other postures. And so uh, there is very little evidence of, of postural practice where you're making different postures and, uh, again until um, mm-hmm. about 1500 uh, AD. Um, and then in 1500 AD, a lot more of these are developed. But again, it's kind of from this black magic mindset where you're, you're, you're doing these in order, to, in order to, to get a certain goal. Um, and that goal might be the uh, very material in terms of uh, uh, making more money or, or other things, or it might be a spiritual goal. Um, and then it, it progresses into the 1800s, and and uh, and then and then it get, gets mixed with the calisthenic practices, and then the body aspect of yoga takes over. Um, 
uh, traditionally the eight limbs of yoga, Ashtanga yoga, are actually uh, a, um, a series of psycho-spiritual techniques uh, in order to uh, enhance meditation or lead to meditation. Um, they aren't okay. they don't have too much to do with the body, but I do suspect that there was a movement practice just in the same way that Qigong is a movement practice in, in the Chinese tradition. I do suspect there was a movement practice that's just natural to human beings that you do if you're meditating a bunch, you move the energy around. Uh, I do not think that it is a, a formalized thing like an Ashtanga yoga you have where you do this primary A series and you do those same postures over and over again. I, I think it was more of a formless practice that that it would okay. be more similar to dance okay yeah it's interesting yeah i mean i think <laughs> certainly d- didn't know until i'm pretty sure yeah i think it was one of your podcasts i listened to that you talked about that before but i certainly had never heard anything about that and my my assumption would be that 99 percent of people practicing yoga don't either not that i know that it not that i maybe it doesn't matter per se but it's just it's it's interesting to know how we got here and i mean i took it took me 15 years to start uncovering that that uh, that thing so i was doing yoga under the impression that it was a thousand year practice for 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 maybe 12 years um and then i read this blog post and then it just kind of by a by a, san, by a sanskrit by a sanskrit wow. historian. uh so it was a sanskrit historian who wrote this blog post so he had the actual like he's been studying this for many many years uh and uh, uh and so uh and then that blew my whole mind open. But in, in a lot of ways, it liberated me because I was under, and yoga caused me a lot of pain. I've, 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 I attribute a lot of the chronic pain I'm in to the, this type of formed yoga. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and kind of forcing my body into positions based on some sort of external ideal of, of what it should look like, which is actually what modern yoga does in it. And, and it, and, mm-hmm. it uh, and it and it follows from the camera too. So the you see the rise of the invention of the camera at the same time as you see the rise of uh, uh, of modern yoga, postural yoga fitting the yoga pose to what it looks like in the camera. That's actually something that is uh, uh, part of the modern yoga tradition that, that that's rising. Oh, that's interesting. But we got to think about what happened before the camera because what were they doing before the camera? Probably not <laughs> fitting it to an external pose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Performing. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. that was fun i got to i got to go down my own my own rabbit hole again um no no it's uh, yeah it's interesting stuff to hear about yeah but uh but yeah we, we should wrap up so and now i'm starting to, at the end of the each each of these podcasts i'm doing now i'm i've you know i come to the i've figured out what your expertise is and uh and then i i want to basically ask one more question where kind of get the 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 one thing one kind of takeaway from this this conversation and uh, so it sounds like you know a lot about exercise physiology. You know a lot about. Um, Can I interject girl- for one? For one, yeah. because I think that um, I, I would be remiss if I I want to um, just not in, in not not taking a long time, but flesh out just a, a little bit more what I was uh, or what we talked about started off talking about, which was the uh, ability to do this job remotely. That's it. Um, because I just I I, I like to, I'd like to get this out there because I think it's something that. Um, I think it's legitimate. I think, I, th- I think it really could happen. And I think it could be, um, and I think it's a great way to make what I do a lot more efficient and could take it to a lot of places that don't currently have it. So um, kind of, you know, real quick, just to circle back around to um, where we started, um, just, just saying, you know, so what I'm currently doing with this, basically reviewing people's uh, medical history prior to surgery. And the fact that while I'm doing it in the office right now, primarily I'm, you know, I'm not interacting with people face to face. And so the big hot, like I said, at the hospital I work at, there's, there's two of me, there's, there's myself and another physician assistant. A lot of the big hospitals have one or two people doing what I do. 
and it makes a huge difference to the bottom line of the hospital. Because like we talked about before, if you can take your same day cancellation rate from 10% down to 4%, boom, a couple million dollars on a high volume hospital. I think that a lot of outlying or smaller hospitals where these surgeries occur probably don't have, but I know they don't even because I used to work at one, um, don't have someone like myself or um, you know someone that's sole job is to reduce same day cancellations by making sure people are optimized for surgery. So my vision for this would be essentially um, these places that don't necessarily have the, the surgical volume to warrant a full-time person doing this. Um, I, I really think they could, as long as you need a couple things, one, you need access to their electronic health record. Not that hard. You can get it remotely. You've got internet. The hospital can onboard you. You need fax access. Great. There's a program called on base. You can accept and send faxes. Got it. Um, you need contact with the anesthesiologists, pick up a phone, no problem. Um, the other biggest thing that I have that makes my job easier is that I've got this nice notebook with the phone number of everybody at like every medical office in Greensboro. So the scheduler for every surgeon, the backdoor number to get to everybody. So I can call at 4.50 on a Friday and say, hey, this, this surgery is Monday. I need this right now and I get it. So you, you would need some sort of know-how into getting access to these people. But again, remote. Um, so my, my kind of thought for this is a lot of these hospitals that can't, that don't have the volume to warrant this, if there was a sort of a central repository where they could on a daily basis, essentially post the, the cases that they need reviewed for upcoming surgery. Mm-hmm. You had a, a remote group of people like myself that had, could, could log in and, see, and have access to this list of, hey, here's, we've got a group of 30 remote hospitals. There are you know, 300 surgeries coming up in the next three weeks that need to be reviewed because of X, Y, or Z reason. Here's a list of all of them. They're going to pay you and again, this number is sort of based off what $50 a chart, a chart can take and there's, you know, you may have to do it based on the acuity of the surgery or things like that, but a chart can take you five minutes or it can take you four hours. So um, depending on the, the difficulty of what's going on, but you would have a set rate per chart. And so you'd have people that are contracted employees, you know, 1099 that are logging in and looking at this and just picking up as many as they want to do or can do remotely. And so every time you complete a chart, you, it's, it's, it's on a, you know, productivity basis. And so for these, all these hospitals that don't have access to this right now, um, it could be done from anywhere. I, I really think, um, as long as you have a way to access the electronic health record, a way to talk to the anesthesiologist and a way to just to, to call the local offices that have the information you might need. And I think this would improve the efficiency a lot because you don't want a hospital, an outlying hospital that does 20 surgeries a day to have someone on staff full time to look at maybe five charts a day. It's, just, it's not efficient, but if their cancellation rate is relatively high, they're still potentially losing hundred thousand dollars a year. And so if you can have an, an, an offsite person reviewing these and um, just going through the simple process of making sure everything is tightened up. And like I said, kind of tied into a package for the anesthesiologist on the day of, I mean, basically what I do is I write up this note with every bit of information that I have, all their, all their studies, all their, um, pertinent findings say, here's the things that we potentially could be uh, worrisome. Here's the things to focus on. Here's all the stuff that's, you know, tightened up and doesn't, doesn't have an issue with it. If that was available for these hospitals to do, I think that you could make a financial case for them to do it. Like I said before, if you've got, you know, in our hospital, potentially we're saving $2 million a year by having two people on staff to, to do this because we reduce cancellation rate so much. Um, and I think doing it remotely again, you had a conversation, I forget the name of the person, but the future of work being remote. 
if you don't need me in an office doing this and you can increase your efficiency by having offsite only the number of, you know, uh, charts or, or people reviewed based on your demand. Beautiful to me anyway. Well, are you, and are you thinking of starting this business? Whew, so that's, uh, yeah, maybe I know that. So again, I've, I've been doing it for three months. As soon as I got in here, I was like, God, this could be, this could be more efficient. Um, you could bring this to people that don't currently have it. And it, it's, it's, just, it's almost like a service for the patients to have this person. The, the patient doesn't, doesn't necessarily know what's super important for the anesthesiologist to understand. Yeah. They may think that their health conditions are going just fine because they feel okay. But what I look and see is that, ooh, your, ejection, your, your, your cardiac function is depressed. And the last time someone looked at it was three years ago. And we don't have a clue what it is today. And if something goes south in surgery, you're at high risk. So I might say you need to have this test done prior to surgery. And then we make sure everyone is, is on the same page that, hey, this guy is actually is safe. Even though he feels okay, that ain't a great metric for um, your fitness for surgery. So um, yeah, I think that. So, but what, uh, what, uh, so, so what is the smallest possible, uh, version of what you're talking about to test it out as quickly as possible? What would that be? Yeah, I think that that's a good question, actually. Um, I think with the, I think the first step probably would be to have, um, I don't know if a pitch is the right word, but it, something put together to talk to a hospital that doesn't currently have this, see if it's something that they're interested in having, understanding why they don't have it and seeing if you could provide it to them. So, I mean, if, if, even if, if I, as one, you know, potentially say there's a hospital that has uh, the need for a small amount of this, could I do this remotely for them and just sort of uh, minimum viable mm-hmm. product test this? Can I do it? Is this possible? Does it work? Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a hard sell in healthcare is, is to, have, to get them to try something that's unproven. But I think if you could quickly show that you're right. yeah. improving their outcomes, that I mean, outcomes drive everything in healthcare. I mean, every, it's, 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 it's metric driven. You know, if you can improve metrics, you're doing great. So I think, yeah, I think that getting, getting talking with, with a single place that doesn't have this, that could use it and getting to buy into it um, might be the place to start with that. And I think scaling something like this would not be hard. The, the the difficult parts would be one having, you know, how do you create this database that's um, compliant with like HIPAA regulations yeah. and things yeah. like that. I mean, that's, that's the hard part. That's the regulatory part. I mean, that's, that's the part where you almost need somebody that knows this regulatory space um, and, and can, can say yes or no, this is, this, this can work or this can't work in the, in, in the, in the way I've envisioned it. And that's what something I haven't had a chance to do yet or even uh, broach yet. Honestly, when I interact with you on Twitter about this, huh. um, your, your invite to a podcast would be like, holy crap, I actually need to think about this. Like this <laughs> maybe kind of go, go, through, go through some thought about it and be like, yeah. so I just been kicking around in my head saying, I can do this from home. And yeah. then I was like, could I, I mean, and could other people and could, if, if, if you had a bunch of like kind of like 1099 contract people and say that the, the, like me or whoever's administrating this, this, this company, gets what 5% of every chart that's done. I mean, I, I, there's not a lot of overhead. There's not a lot of, I think a lot of the, the, the overhead is all is offloaded to the hospital because they would be in charge of onboarding the person to getting them into their electronic health record to making sure that they're, you know, uh, yeah. good practices, whatever they do. So I think, I don't know that you need a, you, you have to create some training, you know, you'd have to create something that's really relatively standardized so people understand what's important to look at. You know, what am I looking for in these patients? What do I need to, you know, if, if, I, if I see X, Y, or Z health condition, what do I need to do about it? Um, there, there's some certain trading from that, but by and large, I think there's not, you know, there's, there's not a physical space you need. There's not, 
lot of staff you need. I think that if, if it was shown to be viable, that it, it would scale relatively easily. But again, the regulatory part of it is something that I would need to do definitely some digging on. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I, I love, I love the idea of coming up with businesses on podcast. Cause I think that's really interesting. Cause there, so there's this part of this whole remote thing is that, uh, you know, Twitter is basically becoming like the Bohemian coffee shop also for startups as well. Uh, cause it's like, it's, that's where a lot of the information is being shared and kind of uh, iterated on and stuff like that. So you have this global oh, kind of like, um, yeah. Uh, the feeding ground for for information about about startups um, and then uh, podcasts are also filling that niche as well I eventually I want to get into some cool stuff like uh, um, doing pitch events via zoom for investors and stuff I've been I've been mapping mm, out yeah I've been mapping out all the investors across so far it's only in the United States and Canada um, but eventually I want to get into the to the world as well people who invest in uh, technology production because other people are starting to get onto this idea that a lot of technology is being created outside of this is Silicon Valley. Uh, and Twitter, I, I say, I, I say it to my wife all the time, but tw- Twitter is just amazing to me because on more than one occasion, I, you know, I've, I've read something or looked at research and said, who's, who's, who wrote this or who's, who's doing this? And I go to Twitter and I find them. I, they interact. I mean, it's amazing. What other, there's no other place in time where you could, I can reach out to somebody that wrote a paper 30 days ago that I'm interested in and ask a question and they answer it. It's, it's just really unbelievable the access you have to people. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that put them out there, themselves out there. I mean, like I, I just mentioned, I mentioned already that I listened to the podcast with um, Jim O'Shaughnessy. And I mean, that guy interacts on Twitter like crazy. I mean, he, he's, he's available, you know, he's, he's, he's an amazing yeah. person yeah. and he's, you can interact with him and talk to him. So yeah, Twitter, Twitter's unbelievable for that reason. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I find myself saying all the time, holy cow, I can't believe this person, you know, uh, responded to what I said. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you know, exactly how this, this, this podcast started. I feel extremely fortunate to be talking to you just because, you know, it, who am I? You know, it's, it's, it gives me an, a chance to talk to somebody that's spoken to people that I am extremely inspired by. And that's, that's just a really cool thing. I think I might be an outlier though. I don't think many other people, uh, uh, reach out to, uh, reach out to random people on, on Twitter. Who, no, who no, no, you're absolutely an outlier, but, um, uh, it, but it's awesome. I yeah. mean, it's, 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 but it's proof that I mean, I've, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. So, I mean, I think it's, it's proof that, um, you know, making yourself available, reaching out, having conversations. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's excellent. I mean, you, and, there's always we, something to learn from everybody. Yeah. And this is, yeah. And, and that's exactly what I was going to say is like, I've learned a lot from you and, and like, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that you were a physician's assistant before we started talking, but I'm very deeply interested in exercise and, 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 and science and, and biology. Um, and that's what I love about the podcast is I can reach out to anybody. And it does seem like reaching out with some sort of link to something that's already been created and kind of other people are paying attention to is really, it's a much the more I do it, the more reviews I get, the more all this different stuff, the more people are yeah. more say yes. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm just, I'm really interested in learning. So it's like, um, and also business too as well. So, um, yeah. I need, and I need to, I mean, I guess I need to start looking to, tr- to try and maybe see if I can find network with people that are in sort of the health entrepreneur space. That's something that I'm not that familiar with. Um, this I've never, I've never looked at it. I've never, I've never seen myself as being anything like that, but well, I know a uh, bunch of people. So if you, if you want any pointers, I can send you in the right direction. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, maybe even just somebody's a sounding board to say, "Hey, this idea actually is viable." Or, my God, you need to think a lot more about this because I see thirty-seven different roadblocks that are going to. I know, doing it, but I know, uh, I know one person in particular, uh, or I'll just say the name Sarah Siegel. Um, she, okay. would, she would have something interesting to say about this. 
Oh, I would love it. I mean, I would love to just, just like this. I mean, spitball with anybody about um, the viability of doing this because like I said, I think. And then I got another podcast episode you'll want to listen to before you start uh, talking to customers because uh, so you want to read the book, uh, the mom test. um, And that's all about how to ask questions in a way that doesn't um, tip them off to your, to the idea that you're asking uh, them about Ah, your business. Okay. People people will lie to you. People will lie to you because because they want to make you feel good. Um, and so and that's like the enemy of business because uh, so yeah. So, so this, this so this is how you, this is how to get uh, uh, real responses from people. Yeah, exactly. And then I interviewed uh, it's called the mom okay. test, and then I interviewed the guy who yeah. wrote it because I had more questions after after um, after reading it, and I'm gonna publish it pretty soon. Um, so who's who? Uh, you don't you don't you don't happen to remember offhand like which? Um, What's the writer? Episode. Do you number? Do you number? Do you number your podcasts? I don't. I <laughs> know. Uh, I haven't. Oh. I, haven't <laughs> I haven't published them yet. Um, oh sure 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 okay. Yeah. So the, it's the mom test with Rob Fitzpatrick. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely look at that. And I'll I'll I'll, pub, I'll, pub, I'll publish it in the next couple of weeks or so. Very cool. I'll be looking out for that then. Yep. Well, cool. I gotta go, but uh, but this is yeah. How can people find out more about you and, and kind of what you're doing? Whew, that's excellent. I mean, I don't, I really don't have a whole lot of a footprint. Um, <laughs> you're on Twitter though. That's what I was yeah, yeah, yeah. I am on Twitter. Um, and I, I do, I need to do more about actually, you know, uh, presenting myself in sort of this, this way with uh-huh. information and things like that. I'm, I'm very, very passive on social media. I don't do a lot of, I interact with something seems interesting, but I'm, uh, it's JD Burns 44 and I'll have to start. If anyone listens to this and, and thinks they're interested in, in me, I'm going to have to start putting out some actual interesting things on there. <laughs> so at JD Burns, uh, four, right? 44. It says four. I think it's four. Is that, oh man, look at that. I don't even know my own handle. Yeah, you're right. It's only one four. So it's JD Burns four, uh, B U. That's me. That's me. Yeah. Cool. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.